Welcome to another episode of the Gay Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith. Joining us today will be author, journalist, and historian Rick Carlin, who will be talking to us about his new book, Last Call Chicago. So, welcome to the show, Rick. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. And we're glad to have you back. Last time, I think we spoke mostly about your book, uh, Paper Cups, and about some of Chicago's gay bar history. But now you have a really exciting project um, coming out. I believe it's at the publishers right now. It is. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be coming out um, near the end of September. And it's called Last Call Chicago, a history of 1001 LGBTQ-friendly taverns, haunts, and hangouts. And um, it's just kind of mind-boggling to know that you were able to track down information about over a thousand gay-friendly, gay-accepting places in Chicago, in one city. Yeah, well, um, a lot of that is due to my collaborator, Suki Delacroix, um, who is, is more of a historian. I'm more of a journalist. Uh, but between us, we both worked for sometimes the same gay publications in Chicago, sometimes for rivaling ones. But we both worked going to the bars, taking photos, you know, going to events, reporting on them, and, you know, working as editors at the various papers. Um, so we had quite a lot of bar history between us. And Suki, of course, has written a couple of books on Chicago's LGBT community. Um, he has Chicago Whispers, which is Chicago from its earliest founding to before Stonewall. And then another one from Stonewall to when Gay Life newspaper was first published. So he's got, you know, everything pre-1969, then like 1969 to the early 70s. And then he's working on another one for the 70s on. Um, but it's, um, so he had a lot of uh, information on places that have been gone for a long time. But between us, we were able to, to uh, piece together a, a thousand and one, which was our publisher's ideas to come up with, you know, a number and shoot towards that. So. Um, we do have 1,001. Most of them are exclusively bars. Some were bars in the evening and restaurants during the day. Um, a couple of them were, tea, you know, more, especially during Prohibition, were not technically bars, but it's where people, gay people hung out. Now, with your, your joint history in Chicago, obviously uh, a good number of the bars that you talk about in the book are places that you're familiar with from firsthand knowledge or from conversations with other people. But how far back does this list go? Where is the first entry in the in the book come from? Well, the earliest gay bar, bar a, a place where, and again, this was during Prohibition, so it wasn't technically a bar, but it was where gay people congregated was the Dill Pickle Club and Dill is spelled D-I-L. Um, it was in the 1920s. And it is 
um, was the 1920s to the 1930s. And it was where bohemians and anarchists and all sorts of people used to gather. Um, the listings for it list three different addresses, but it was a building that went from one street to another with entrances on both streets. And then the alley had an entrance too. So there were addresses for all three entrances, but it was all the Dill Pickle Club. So it never actually moved. The address just moved. The address just, <laughs> yes. And that's a, there's a few places in the, in the book that have more than one address listed. And a lot of times it's because they had an entrance on two different sides of the building or something like that. A couple times places did move like a few doors down. So, I think that's even true of Stonewall, though. I think Stonewall was sometimes listed with one street number and sometimes the other because it was adjoining spaces. Right, right. So, and then sometimes there were, there were errors. There was one that we had where we found numerous listings with an address with an even number. But when you go and you do a Google search for that address, there's a, a building there that's obviously been there since the 1920s, and it's a residential apartment building in a suburb. And But across the street, there was a gay bar. So I think they were listing the wrong address many times in publications, and that just got repeated in gay bar listings and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a couple times we had to make corrections. So... Out of these thousand and one bars that you've got listed in this book, mm -hmm. and, and when I say bars, you know, obviously there are places, like you said, that are restaurants and other kinds of meeting places. But out of these thousand and one listings in this book, um, what were some of the ones that really kind of surprised you the most that you said, wow, that was really interesting, or I wish I could have gone there because it sounds like it would have been a cool place? Oh, well, um, so many of the places in the Bronzeville neighborhood, which is now an up and coming entertainment district again, uh, primarily in the black community. And it was back then, uh, it was the home of like black nightlife in the twenties and thirties and forties, all the way up into the fifties in Chicago. And there were quite a few, few bars there that were very interesting sounding um, and in the 1930s, there was a thing called the Pansy Craze, and it was very foppish gay men. And you can see it in old movies, and you know, F Franklin Pangborn and actors of that ilk that were, you know, kind of very effeminate on stage. Um, and they were usually playing waiters or, or butlers or things like that. Uh, but the Pansy Craze, and there was a place called the Club Oh My, um, or no, the Club K9, and there, this was in downtown Chicago, actually, and its, it's um, ad was a very uh, cartoonish drawing of a, of a very effeminate gay man looking very much like Betty Boop, going, oh, why should I be mannish? And I just, that sounded like a fun place to go to. Now, was Chicago known for having a lot of uh, bars that cater to the gay black clientele? Yes, you know, Chicago um, 
likes to bill itself as a city of neighborhoods, but in reality, that's a nice way of saying it's a very segregated city. Uh, for the most part, the black community is on the south and west side, and the white community is the north side and parts of the south side. Um, but it was, um, and it was that way in the ninth, you know, pre pre civil rights movement. It's still predominantly that way today. There are neighborhoods that are somewhat more mixed. Um, you know, on the south side, Hyde Park, on the north side, Uptown. But for the most part, it's still pretty much um, a segregated city. It's um, south of downtown is, and west of downtown are mostly black. And um, the north side is mostly white. Um, and the bars reflected that. But there were quite a few uh, gay bars on the south side, especially around uh, Cottage Grove and Stony Island. Um, a lot of the, there was the, a bar called Amen Corner that was opened on 75th Street and then it moved to 81st in California. Uh, the Cabin Inn also had more than one address on Cottage Grove. They were, it would basically move four doors away from, from where it had been open. Um, and the longest running gay bar still open is, um, oh my goodness, having a senior moment here. It is the um, Jeffrey Pub. Thank you. I'm Jeffrey, 79th and Jeffrey. Um, and that's been around for since the 60s. Um, it was in one location and then moved across the street to another location where it's been since the 70s. And that's sort of like the black LGBT community center. They do, you know, there's there's poetry readings there and spoken word and, and music and, you know, groups meet there and things like that. So it kind of serves as you know, a gay and lesbian community center as well as a bar. And that's on the south side of town also, or? Right, it's 7,900 south, so 79 blocks south of the middle of downtown. And every eight blocks is a mile, so it's like 10 miles south of downtown, about the middle of the south side. Is, um, is it still pretty much a segregated bar, still predominantly a black Oh, yeah, bar? I would say. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've gone there a few times and, you know, I'm the, the speck of rice in, in the soup or whatever. Uh, you know, there's always there's always a few people, but it's predominantly a, a, a bar where black people feel more comfortable. I think sometimes they feel more comfortable there than on the north side. So, you know, it's a gathering spot for them. Now, Chicago's had a pretty um, a pretty strong repu reputation as being a welcoming place for um, the gay community for decades. It's always, I think, for the Midwest, been well known as having a lot of um, a lot of gay bars and a lot of concentrated areas where people could, you know, gay people could go and and find clubs and find people to hang out with and and so on. 
Um, I know for a long time, I always thought of the area um, of Boys Town, which I know right. now it's it's no longer cool to call it Boys Town. It's what, North Halstead or what are you calling it now? Well, North Halstead, the merchants there have always tried to call it North Halstead. Um, nobody called it Boys Town when I was when I lived in Chicago. That started, I think, probably I moved out of Chicago 2010. I think around 2000, they started calling it Boys Town. It was always called the Halstead Strip or going to Halstead. Um, you know, it's a one mile strip of LGBT, of bars, of businesses, primarily LGBT or LGBT friendly. Um, and it's no longer the place where most LGBT people live. The neighborhood has become much more mixed and I would say predominantly heterosexual as far as residences. Um, but the difference is, and I want to jump back a little bit, what happened in Chicago, and I'm sure this is similar in many um, cities, is that, you know, a neighborhood would become a little downtrodden and LGBT people, LGBT people would move in, primarily gay men, because um, they didn't have to worry about, you know, was it safe for their kids to play outside and things like that, for the most part, although some of us did have children. Um, but they would move into a neighborhood and they would get a good deal on a rent on a big apartment or whatever, and they would fix it up and then enough people started moving in the neighborhoods that businesses would open and bars would open and restaurants. And eventually the neighborhood would become, would turn around, we gentrify it. And then straight people would start moving in and we'd get priced out and we'd go to another neighborhood and begin the whole process again. And that's kind of the pulse of, a sit of any city life, I think. You know, a neighborhood becomes a little more downtrodden People move in there because the rents are cheap. They end up pushing the people that were living there out into someplace else, which then becomes a little bit lower income area and, you know, may not be kept up as nice or viewed as well. And then the neighborhood gets gentrified and it moves on and it moves up and it goes on again. The difference was with Halst, uh, and that happened in Chicago because the gay bars were uh, in like, um, Lincoln Park area, then they moved to Old Town, then they moved down to what is now called River North in Chicago, which was the warehouse district just north of downtown. Then it moved up to Lakeview and what Halstead Street or Boys Town, and then it moved up to Andersonville. And the difference was in when the bar owners opened up their bars in along Halstead, it was at the time when the mob was not running the gay bars anymore. So people were buying the properties or uh, renting the properties under their own names and getting leases and then making money and buying the properties so that they never got priced out. So that's why Halstead remains a gay entertainment district, even though the property values are so high that you know, no new gay bars are really going in there. The ones that are there are surviving because they almost all own their properties. 
that seems a little unusual to me. Uh, from other cities that I've I've visited and I've researched, a lot of times the major um, gay neighborhoods, as they're calling them now, the gayborhoods, right. were in close proximity to downtown. Um, Halstead is not that's not the case at all. Well, no, but it it what it was where it was the neighborhood where people were living, but they would go to down outside of downtown because usually, you know, until the six, until the seventies or eighties, when they tried to re, revigorate downtowns, you know, the businesses would close the town and all it'd be quiet at night. There'd be nobody there. And when people were very closeted, it made a great place to have gay bars because you wouldn't run into your neighbor or anything down there, you know? So that's why the gay bars were all outside of downtown areas or sometimes even in downtown areas. Um, but what happened is that um, where Halstead Street now is, was a heavily Latino and very gang infested neighborhood. And when the gay community was getting priced out of the neighborhoods creeping north from downtown, where Halstead is, was the next neighborhood north. So that made sense. They moved from downtown to Old Town to Lincoln Park to Lakeview, which is like a progression north from downtown. And as each neighborhood gentrified, they just moved into the next neighborhood north. In its heyday, uh, which I assume was why you were up there working in the in the uh, gay magazine industry, um, but in its heyday, how many how many gay bars were there at one time in Chicago? Do you have any idea? Well, I know at one time when I was at Gay Chicago, we counted, and we counted Chicago and Cook County, which is you know the collar suburbs around the city, and there were 134, all at the bars. same time, all at the same time. But you have to understand, Chicago was had a lot, had more bars than many cities anyway. When I was growing up, it was not unusual for every city block to have a bar on the corner. When we talked about the corner bar, they literally meant the bar on the corner. If you went to the next block, there was a bar on its corner too. Um, and they were all these little, you know, storefront taverns that, you know, the neighborhood people would go and sit in. And so um, Chicago probably, like many blue collar cities, had a lot of those, those kinds of bars. I think Milwaukee was very similar. When I go to Milwaukee, I see a lot of that in the, the older neighborhoods closer to downtown. You see a lot of neighborhood bars. I, um, I was just gonna Pittsburgh, mention- Pittsburgh, I think is the same. I was just gonna mention that because um, a while back when I was speaking with uh, Michael Takash, he made the same kind of remark that, um, and they were, not only were there bars on every block, but every bar had its own flavor. So there would be a Polish pub and an Irish pub and a gay pub and whatever, just kind of all mixed in. It wasn't necessarily, this is the gay neighborhood and this is the Polish neighborhood. It was, this is where all the bars are and they're kind of scattered around and Everybody finds their own favorite little hole in the wall of their own pub. 
Right. Oh, I mean, in Chicago, of course, since it's a, a city of neighborhoods, and again, that means segregation, there were the Polish bars in the Polish neighborhood, the German bars in the German neighborhood. Where I grew up, we were right on the dividing line between the Jewish neighborhood and the German neighborhood and an Asian section. The three of them came together at one point and it worked out well for my family because my dad's a Russian Jew and my mom's a German Lutheran. So we were like right at the borderline between the two. Um, so my high school was basically these three groups together. Uh, but the bars were definitely that. And then oddly enough, where I grew up, for some reason, there was a two block stretch of a major thoroughfare, Irving Park Road, that had three gay bars within two blocks. And this was in the 1950s and 60s. And nobody I can interview can explain why they all happened to be together there. Because it, it wasn't like that in other neighborhoods. You wouldn't go to another neighborhood and find a little stretch with gay bars in it. That was one of the few places outside of like the, the downtown ring in, in the 50s and 60s where you would find a gay bar. Now, when you first started this project, when, when you and Suki sat down and said, okay, we're going to do this book, how many bars did you think you were going to actually come up with? Well, it's interesting because I, I mean, I came up with the idea and then presented it to Suki and, um, and Ian at Rod, Rattling Good Yarns Press as an idea to work on it together. Um, and I kind of saw it as more of a, just sort of like, if you remember the old Dameron's guides, the gay, the gay guides to different cities, it'd be the name of the bar, the address, kind of the clientele that went there and a, a sentence or two describing the place. So, you know, so for example, there would be a place that would be, I remember the old guides would be like Leather and Levi's or Lesbian Bar or whatever. And then it would tell you a little bit about it. And I kind of viewed it as that. And they were like, let's do it, but let's expand it more. And talk about a little bit of the history of the bar, get a flavor for the bar. And Suki had all these interviews he had done over the years for a column in one of the gay papers where he interviewed people, older LGBT people about bars from the past. So we incorporated those interviews into the bars as well as research that we did. And Suki has the archives for uh, Gay Chicago Magazine, which is no longer, it went out of business. Um, and he got all the, he got copies of every single issue before they closed it down. So he has a full archive of that. He has a huge archive of outlines in Windy City Times, two other papers um, from, the, from, that e from that era, as well as, you know, newspapers that go back to gay life and pre-Stonewall days, um, ones that weren't published on a regular basis, but might have had one or two issues. Um, so he had all of these, and the, 
and the Mattachine uh, organization's publication with their list of, of bars. So we had quite a, a bit to go on with those. And so we ended up deciding to do almost like an encyclopedia listing. Which I think, so, I think that's remarkable because, you know, as you, you start looking at the bar history around the country and so much of it is missing and so, so much of it is hard to track down because there was such a, a lack of documentation back then. Um, the further you go back, it seems like the less information you're likely to find as an outsider um, other than you know, legal things. If a bar got busted or if there was arson, then yeah, you might find it as listing in the newspaper or in the local police documents. But for the most part, um, those bars tried to fly under the, ra the radar. They weren't trying to get noticed other than by their gay clientele. Um, so it's really incredible to know that the two of you have gotten together and collected all this information and put it into one place. Um, and I've seen, I've seen the PDF of the book and, you know, look through the listings and some of the images and stuff. And it is just amazing. I cannot wait until the actual book comes out. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be blown away by having this comprehensive guide that shows so much of the the colorful history of of chicago's you know gay decades i mean we're talking about 100 years or more of um of history of gay establishments in the windy city yeah i'm i'm pretty proud of that we have we actually have 100 years of gay bars because we have ones from the from 1922 to ones that opened in 2022 because three bars opened during the time we were writing the book. Um, and we, we managed to get those included. And we have hundreds and hundreds of images, not only ads from the bars, but also photos that were run in magazines that were taken at the bars. So, you know, they might, and Chicago used to have a thing called the Mr. Windy City Contest. And each bar would have the, you know, Mr. Gold Coast or the Mr. Bistro and they would each have their own contest. And then, you know, sort of like the Miss America contest, there'd be regional and then the, the citywide contest. Um, and we have tons of pictures from those. Uh, it's really funny. I, I love looking at the pictures. I'm like, oh my God, he's really hot, but he's probably 20 years older than I am now. Yeah. <laughs> if he's still alive. Yeah. Um, and there, it's, it's really wonderful to see some of that. Um, some of, you know, some fun drag photos from the past. Um, and then the other thing we have is in the back, we have a listing called shared spaces. Because in our research, we discovered that one address would have been home to five or six gay bars over a course of 40 years. And the reason for that is Chicago's um, liquor licenses at that time, it's different now, but at that time, they were not assigned to, you did not get a liquor license. The address got a liquor license and you were the holder of that liquor license for that address. So if you wanted to move your bar to another location, you couldn't. 
you had to go get another liquor license for that address. But if you didn't want to run your bar anymore, what you did is you would let somebody use your liquor license and open a bar. And so most of the bars were DBA businesses doing business as. So it was under, you know, the liquor license might be for the Lucky Clover, but it would be known as the Gold Coast. And doing business, lucky doing business as the Gold Coast. So that's how it would work. And a lot of times what would happen is the person would loan out their liquor license or lease it out. And if the person couldn't make their payments, they would just pull it back and either open their own bar again or open another gay bar, lease it to somebody else who would open another gay bar. Yeah, I, I just did um, an interview with someone. I know you're familiar with him. I, I know you all know each other. Uh, his name is Owen Keenan, and he was talking about some Chicago history going back into the day. Uh, much like you, M. Suki, uh, he has written some books on um, Chicago's gay culture, and he mentioned that one of the most fascinating bars that he remembers and knows about from Chicago's history, uh, which actually inspired him to write a book, was uh, Dugan's Bistro and the, the story of the bearded lady. Oh, yes. In your Chicago history, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What is your favorite bar? What is the bar that kind of stands out and says, wow, this was really different than any bar anywhere? Well, it, it doesn't put me on the spot because I think anybody who knows me knows um, Sidetrack is my favorite bar in Chicago. It has been almost since the day it opened. And part of the reason it's my favorite is I, even though my job required me to go to bars and stuff all the time, it would never occur to me to just go to a bar and sit there and drink just to talk to people. I mean, I can sit and drink and talk at home for cheaper and, you know, or have friends over. Um, and as far as just sitting in a bar, and there are people that do that and love it. But to me, I always wanted to have something special going on at the bar. And Sidetrack was the first video bar in Chicago. It was definitely the first video gay bar. And they did their own video, music videos. They opened like just as MTV was starting. So there wasn't a whole lot. So they would make their own videos using clips from old movies and things set to music. Um, and then on Monday nights, since it was slow, they started doing show tunes. So it was like going to a piano bar. You would go and they'd be playing, you know, Judy Garland in a clip from, you know, Babes in Arms or something. And then the next one would be Ethel Merman from There's No Business Like Show Business. And people would start singing along. And then it got to the point where it became kind of Rocky Horror-esque. People would start yelling back at the screen and, you know, doing things. And it became their most popular night. So they expanded it to Friday cocktail hour and Sunday afternoons. And they still have it on those three nights, Monday nights, Sunday afternoons, and Monday Friday evenings. And... It's their, 
their most popular thing and they get people coming in just to, it's been featured on the news and everything because it is so interactive. They scream at the screen, they yelp, they throw things in the air. Um, they, at one point, like for example, in a number, a number from Avita, when the music hits a crescendo, they all grab bar napkins and throw them in the air. And I once said to the owners, Art and Pepe, doesn't it drive you nuts? cost you a fortune for these bar napkins? He goes, for three boxes of bar napkins, the amount of liquor we sell more than makes up for it. You know, and within minutes, they have somebody come around and sweep everything up and people continue on. And um, I just, I love it. Whenever I go back to Chicago, I make it a point to get there. So that's one of my favorite places. The other one was Gentry um, downtown. It was on Rush Street, um, right off Michigan Avenue, Chicago's Magnificent Mile. And it was a piano bar and we liked it so much. My husband and I got married there. So those were my two favorites. Um, there were a lot of fun bars that were, um, I enjoyed going to, but um, those were my two hangouts. But also the Closet, which is one of the oldest gay bars in Chicago. Um, and it was just a neighborhood bar and that's, a friend, a bunch of friends and I would go and sit there and drink, even though I said I wouldn't do that. But during the 80s, I did a little bit. Um, and I would go there and hang out. And that was sort of my hangout bar, but that was usually have a couple drinks there and then go out for the night. So Sidetrack obviously has been in Chicago, in Chicago for quite a long time. Um, and from what I'm getting from your description is their recipe for success hasn't really changed a whole lot. I mean, I'm sure they probably made some adjustments here and there to, to match the trends coming up, but the general ambiance and vibe of the bar has been pretty consistent over its run, uh, over its long run. Is that correct? Yeah, I would, I would say so. I mean, they would, you know, they thought they do follow the trends or lead or lead the trends in many cases. Like for a while there, they were doing a country two-step night, you know, when when in the 80s when everybody was doing that. Um, they were doing a comedy night for a while. They have theme nights. The weekends are, you know, sort of just greatest hits packages. Um, but it's, it's definitely always been that. And the other thing is that sidetrack, one of the reasons I enjoy going there is the owners give back a lot to the community. They have a strong sense of community. And that's something I found in Chicago's gay bars overall, which I have not found. Like I live in Fort Lauderdale, Wilton Manors now. And you don't find, there's a couple places where the owners have kind of a, an idea to give back to the community, but not to the extent that I've seen in Chicago. I mean, I would say that probably three out of four nights of the week, Sidetrack is doing some sort of benefit for some organization. Here, maybe two or three times a month, you'll see a place do it. Yeah, I can understand that. I've, I've been, obviously, to both places. Sure. And um, Fort Lauderdale, it feels very new and touristy. Um, you know, in Chicago, even though I've never lived there, when you went into, um, you know, the North Halstead area, you felt like you were in in kind of a comfortable environment. You felt like you were part of the family. 
even if you didn't know anybody there, the neighborhood just felt warm and accepting and you could just bounce back and forth between bars. It felt very established and comfortable. In Fort Lauderdale, it, it feels kind of like you're strolling down the boardwalk and just bouncing from one little shop to another, but they don't seem to have any strong connection as much. Yeah, I would say that's probably true. And part of that is, you know, Chicago is much more, it's more residents that are going to the bars. Whereas Fort Lauderdale and Wilton Manors, we get a lot of people that are on their way off on a cruise or they're on vacation. It's a vacation spot. So we get, you don't have quite as many people who are residents going to some of the bars. Uh, there are bars that attract more residents, uh, you know, more, more permanent people. It's not quite as transient. Um, but I would also say that, you know, walking down Halstead and feeling comfortable, part of that is our white privilege that we have. And we have to acknowledge that. I, I know that it is not the same for Black people in, who live in Chicago even. Um, although I know the people at Sidetrack are very accepting and, and do a lot to bring in minority communities. You know, I think the minority communities overall don't feel as comfortable in the gay bars there as they do on the South Side. And, you know, part of it is just being among your own kind sometimes. Um, you know, I know this, if I go to a straight bar, I don't feel as comfortable as when I go to a gay bar. They may be a very comfortable, welcoming straight bar, and I don't have to hide who I am, but I'm not among my people, so to speak. Yeah, I can and, relate. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I was talking with somebody and I said to them, I, the first time that hit me as being part of the majority was when I went to the March on Washington in 1993. It was the first time I was in a city that was almost primarily gay because everyone knew that this march was coming and so a lot of the residents said it's going to be a nightmare logistically to get around. I'm leaving town or staying home. So like you would get on the subway and it would be thousands and thousands of gay people just waiting to get on the subway. And I said at the time to my husband, now I understand what Jews feel like when they go to Israel. You know, you may have been welcome and feel safe where you live and things, but you are not the majority. And there's a big difference with that. And I think that that's always going to be an issue when you get, you know, subsets uh, and intersectionality of groups that in the gay and lesbian community, we have that. And I think what we need to do is be upfront about it and not pretend that some people don't feel as uncomfortable some places as others. You know, there are a lot of white people would not feel as comfortable going to the Jeffrey pub. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's the same feeling, you know, you're not in the major majority, so you feel a little uncomfortable. And I think we need to realize that that's our own stuff as well as external stuff going on. And I hope I put that in a way that's clear. And under, I mean, I'm not dissing anybody because of it, but it is a fact of life, you know, but 
Um, you know, I do feel very comfortable walking down Halstead. Um, I feel very comfortable walking down Wilton Drive. Um, you know, when I walk down Las Olas, and which is like the main dining and shopping area, I feel comfortable, but I don't feel as at home as I do on Wilton Drive or Halstead Street because right. I'm not the majority. Right. And that's the difference, I think. And I, I didn't I didn't realize until I started getting more into um, the research for my project that you know the white privilege aspect that you mentioned, you know, when I first really started becoming part of a gay community, I first my first gay bar experience was in the late 70s. But my first um, part being part of a real gay community was in the early 80s in Atlanta. And um, there was a bar that I used to go to regularly. I mean, we had quite a few bars there at the time, but there was one bar that I used to go to a couple times a week. It was called the Far Library. And it was kind of um, um, upscale, if you can call it that, um, dance club, a, a bar with a, a relatively large dance floor and patio. And um, it was the kind of place that you would never see anybody go into in shredded jeans and, and tank tops. Um, it was very much, uh, you know, maybe a necktie or uh, khakis or, you know, pleated corduroy slacks or something like that. It was a, a little bit more dressy um, kind of bar. And it never occurred to me until I started talking to people about these different bars and the history of where we used to go that I don't know that I ever saw a person of color in that bar. But it didn't occur to me at the time because I'm not a person of color. And right. it just, and I don't think it was intentional. I don't think the, the bar owner said, no, we don't want any Hispanics or any blacks or any, you know, anybody in here. I think it was by virtue of, um, like you said, with Chicago, the city being a little segregated the neighborhoods being segregated. So if obviously if you put a bar in a white neighborhood that kind of calls for, you know, white business attire, that you're probably not going to attract a lot of, you know, young people of color. But, well, and it depends on the music you're playing too. Right. I mean, there was, there was an incident in Chicago where one gay bar, the owner got called out because he told the, the DJs that he did not want as much rap music being played because it brought too many black people into the bar and he didn't want to be identified as a black bar. So, yeah. and that was on Halstead. So, you know, it, it um, you know, and there were, there were, one of the things we write about in the book is there were bars that were, you know, sued or picketed because of discriminatory carding procedures. You know, you would ask for ID at the bar and, you know, a young 20-year-old white twink would flash his driver's license or a driver's license and get by. And then, you know, a black person who was well, equally well-dressed and everything would come up and they'd want seven different forms of identification. Now I've heard that and in other cities. Yeah, and that was, you know, there were, there were things like that. There were also things they're a little more subtle, but, you know, um, hopefully we're learning from that and it's not as prevalent now. Um, I'm sure, you know, 
I'm sure people of color could certainly cite instances as recently as yesterday where things like that happen. Um, but hopefully we're progressing and we're getting to a point where that's not that big of a deal. But for example, when, when we were talking, you know, one of the gay bars, most of the black gay bars were in black neighborhoods, but there was one Club Luray that was actually on the Halstead Strip in Chicago. And they constantly had, they were constantly being, the police were constantly being called, complaining about noise, complaining about people hanging out in front of the bar, um, drug deals going on in the bar. When, you know, it had been a straight, um, a, a white bar before that, there were almost zero complaints for noise and everything. And it was basically the same bar with just different clientele. So, and, um, you know, so there, were, there was the, uh, an investigation done and it turned out that some of the people that were filing the complaints were other bar owners. So, um, you know, again, racism lives. We have to, you know, keep that in mind. But, you know, Chicago's bars though, uh, for the most part, were comforting safe spaces for people. Um, there was one that we read, that we wrote about, we found out about, um, it was called the Midget Bar. No one knows why, it wasn't owned by a, by a little person or anything, but it was the second floor above a neighborhood tavern and it was a women's bar. And when they would come to raid, they'd have to come up this narrow staircase. So the women would kick out the, the screens from the back window and jump down onto a nearby shed and run out the back back and down the alley to get a, get away. So um, that was one place that we we had learned about that was kind of a fun, it was a fun fact to learn. Um, and then in getting ready for this interview, I went through and I I made a list of the oldest, the longest running gay bars in Chicago and um, the, and the earliest gay bars. So um, as I mentioned, the Dill Pickle Club, which actually ran from 1917 to 1930 something was one and Diamond Lills, which was on Rush Street, which was a very big um, nightclub area when I was growing up, it was like straight nightclubs then. Uh, that opened in 1928, and it advertised as having the prettiest chorus boys in the city, which is about as much as you could do is say gay bar, gay bar, in your advertising as you could. Right. Now, you mentioned that in the course of writing the book, you discovered uh, several new gay bars that were opening up in Chicago in the last couple in the last year. Um, <clears throat> the trend that I've seen in a lot of bars in different parts of the country that have opened in the last couple of years since the onset of COVID, basically, um, very often we're trying not to be so um, specific about the crowd they were trying to attract and kind of portraying themselves more as a queer bar or, you know, an umbrella 
um, bar for the for the entire LGBTQ acronym. Is that what you're seeing in Chicago, or are they still very much like white male bars or lesbian bars or country western bars? Well, the two most recently open are very definitely, shall we call them niche bars or specialty bars. Um, the one is called Two Bears Tavern. So that'll give you an idea um, of who's going to be going there. Uh -huh. And then the other one um, is called Nobody's Darling, and that's made national news. It's been featured in the New York Times and everything because it's a lesbian bar, which, you know, there are very few lesbian bars even left. So that the fact that these two women, they, they actually took over a wine bar that was run by a lesbian and had a lesbian following, but was also very popular with neighborhood people. And they've continued that and it's a specialty. They specialize in uh, craft cocktails and fine wines. So it's a very upscale bar uh, run by two black lesbians. Um, and the title comes from a Toni Morrison line, Be Nobody's Darling. So that's where they've come up with that. And um, it's a fairly exclusive bar. They don't even list the phone number um, on, their, on their Facebook page or anything. It's very interesting. Because yeah. um, I wanted to call and interview them for the, for the, for the paper. And um, I finally got a phone number and left numerous messages, but was never called back. Um, but uh, so that would be the the newest, you know, the two newest bars. But and then interestingly, during that exact same time period, two of the longest running gay bars in Chicago closed and the buildings were torn down. Was Little Jim's one of those or was that? Little Jim's was one and the other one was Manhandler which if the building has not been torn down, it's certainly going to be gutted and renovated. And it's in a very um, yuppie kind of area. So I doubt it will be reopening as a gay bar. And it's a very high uh, priced real estate area now. Uh, when it opened, it was in the middle of nowhere. People were, even for a gay bar, people were like, why are you going way over there? So, so now, uh, roughly, um, to your knowledge, how many gay bars are left in Chicago right now that are operating? Do you have any idea? Oh, um, it's over 100. It's over 100. I know that. Wow. Um, and again, that depends on if you're counting just the city or the right. collar cities, you know, around, around, the, um, around the city. When we did ours, we even counted... Um, the bars in Calumet City, which are right on the border of Indiana, um, and then right across from Indiana, uh, there are a bunch of gay bars that, you know, would, for all intents and purposes, are Chicago area bars. But we just decided the state line would be our, our cutoff point there. Um, but yeah, so and we and we didn't go to far farther away cities like Quincy or Rockford or Joliet. We left those out too. 
Um, yeah, know, when I was when I was interviewing Owen, um, the first bar he talked about was in Rockford, and the second one was in Quincy, and and I had to point out that you know for the people that were listening. We're talking about places that are four or five hours away from Chicago. These are not next door. This is not a suburb of Chicago. So don't get in your mind. Well, yeah, it's a little tiny town, but it's got a bar because it's close to Chicago. It is not close to Chicago. No, no. Um, I would four or five hours might be an exaggeration. Maybe with bad traffic, maybe three. But um, for for Rockford, at least Quincy, I'm thinking that might be four. But even like you can drive to Milwaukee from Chicago in two hours with good traffic. So, um, you know, because we used to go up to Milwaukee bars for the night a lot of the time, just so we'd be a new face somewhere. Um, but uh, it was it's interesting because it would occur to us to go to Milwaukee rather than go down to the South Side bars and go to the Black bars. And a bunch of my friends that we would go with were Black. So I don't know why that never occurred to us to go down to the Jeffrey Maybe they thought we'd be too scared or whatever. So you've got this book coming out. It'll be out in September. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's listening to this and wants to learn more about the history of Chicago's gay bars over the last hundred years um, certainly is, is invited to pick up the book. The title, again, is Last Call Chicago, A History of 1001 LGBTQ-Friendly Taverns, Haunts, and Hangouts. And it was authored by you, Rick Carlin, and uh, St. Suki Delacroix. And it's available. We're going to put the link at the end of the video, but it's available at rattlinggoodyarns.com. So the website for the publisher will have a pre-order available. You can order it right now and have one of the very first copies in your neighborhood. And uh, of course, we'll put those links up at the end of the video also. For those of you who are in the Chicago area and you are dying to learn more about Rick Carlin's favorite longtime Chicago bar, Sidetrack, you will also be able to go there and meet him and meet uh, St. Suki Delacroix at their uh, book release party, which is being held when? October 12th at six o'clock. So that's um, that's right around National Coming Out Day. It's and, the day uh, after, uh, two days after, or the day after, sorry. And um, I'll be in town because the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame is doing its induction ceremony on Coming Out Day. So I'll be there for that, as will Suki. And then we're going to have the book release party on the 12th. And we will you'll be able to get signed copies there. Uh, you can also order through Amazon. But if you order through Rattling Good Yarns Press, if you are outside of California, there's no sales tax. And they do not charge for shipping. So, And it's a small minority gay-owned business so yes so it's another reason exclusively lgbt authors they have about a dozen authors in their stable right now um and looking to expand and it is um one of the reasons i went to them with this is that they i had such a good experience with them 
um, printing my memoir that I wanted to present this to them because I have enough writer friends that I know the nightmares with small presses of getting paid and getting your royalties and things. And uh, it's been a very good experience with Rattling Good Yarns. And they have a strong sense of being part of the community, which was important to me. And they have, you know, you're welcome to look through their website. They have plenty of other uh, books. The, the gentleman I interviewed the other day, Owen Keenan, has a couple of books uh, that he's written with them. Uh, Saint Suki Delacroix, uh, I think almost all of his books have come through uh, through them as well. So you'll find plenty of, uh, of gay content there and uh, plenty of stuff to learn more about our gay history. Well, and one of the things I hope, you know, from this book is that it encourages people from other cities to do something similar. I'm sure there are people that did, that worked for the gay papers or, you know, were very active in the bar community in, you know, Detroit and Los Angeles, San Francisco and Cleveland. And to do the same thing because our history is in our bars. That's, that's where we gathered and that's where our history started. Amen. I agree with you 100%. And not only the big cities, but surprisingly, as I've done some of this research, you know, I discovered that, for instance, Galveston, Texas, was a pretty big hotspot for gay bars at one time. Uh, San Antonio, Texas, not places that are huge and major mm -hmm. metropolitan areas, but smaller cities around the country, you know, they need to be preserved, too. Yes, definitely. And thank you so much, Rick, for coming back again and telling us about your well, new thank book. Thank you. And about some of the, um, especially the black bars in Chicago, because that gets left aside a lot. So I'm glad you had time to bring some of that in. Well, thanks. And I'm very proud of the fact that we have quite an, an inclusive um, group there. We have, you know, I would say a good 25% of the book are are people of, of bars frequented by people of color, black and Latino bars. Um, to, to my knowledge, there, there were no Asian bars, um, LGBT Asian bars, but um, if somebody knows of one, please we'll put it in an updated edition. And I just wanted to point out the book is available in hardcover or paperback. The hardcover is only a few bucks more and it really is a lot nicer. I was so blown away. I almost cried when I opened the box getting my preview copy. Uh, it's really a great book. They did a beautiful job of it. The big coffee table book. Well, very cool. We're looking forward to it. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I appreciate it. Oh, and thank you for being here. Thanks. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode, or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.